Last weekend, Caitlin and I drove out to Lake Chelan to go camping for the night. Her parents have a place out there, and we actually hadn't been there since our wedding reception was hosted there a while back. Uh, on the way there, we found ourselves playing some of those car games that you play uh, when you're on the road uh, during, during our three-ish hour drive to get out there. We did a little bit of I Spy. We sang several rounds of Down by the Bay. If you know that one, it's a good one. And we also worked our way through listing things, uh, through the alphabet. Uh, we took turns listing male names and female names and animal names, uh, everything that we could come up with in, in the order of the alphabet, taking turns. Some letters were more difficult than others to come up with, right? X in particular is the hardest of all, <laughs> you know, name, whether it's for a, a boy, a girl, or an animal. But nonetheless, it was a fun way to pass the time and to practice our ABCs together. You see, for us, the alphabet, it, it could be a practical way to organize a library or a fun way to pass time in the car. But for the ancient Hebrews, it was a way to write poetry. There are several psalms in the Bible that are written in the form of an acrostic, an acrostic poem where each successive line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the psalm that we're looking at today are, is, is one of those. Actually, the psalms that we're looking at today are one of those. So, so go ahead and open your Bible to Psalm chapter 9. Now, I do say psalms that we're looking at because we're actually looking at Psalms 9 and 10. Psalms 9 and 10. Why both? Well, because they actually go together. In fact, in the Greek and Latin translations of the Old Testament, these two are listed as a single psalm. And in Hebrew, they are together one of those acrostic poems, acrostic psalms that I was talking about with every two verses or so, starting with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The alphabet begins at the beginning of Psalm 9, and every two verses works its way through, but then it concludes at the end of Psalm 10 to create a whole out of the two psalms. And now somewhere along the way, this poem got split up and some of the letters in the middle got lost or, or cut out or something. And, and that's probably why it got split up in our Bibles. But really, these two psalms ought to be read together because not only do they have this alphabetical acrostic, uh, but they also share a common theme all throughout Rather than listing off names, like Caitlin and I did in the car, Psalms 9 and 10 give an alphabetical description of justice. Just like two weeks ago when we read Psalm 7, God in this is, is depicted as a righteous judge who will establish justice. As we read these psalms, they appear almost like some kind of courtroom drama with climactic appeals heard in the courtroom, but also a good bit of dramatic tension between the hearings. So let's read Psalms 9 and 10. And, and since it is a little bit long, I've asked a few others to help read this. And so as we read this together, you'll hear the voices of Brent and Kelly, as well as Jerry and Terry. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalms 9 and 10. 
I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turned back, they stumbled and perished before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemies have vanished in everlasting ruins. Their cities you have rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with equity. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the peoples. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cries of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See what I suffer from those who hate me. You are the one who lifts me up from the gates of death, so that I may recount all your praises, and in the gates of daughter Zion rejoice in their deliverance. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid has their own foot been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall depart to Sheol in the nations that they forgot. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. Rise up, O Lord. Do not let mortals prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are only human. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they've devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart, we shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and iniquity. They sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they may seize the poor. They seize the poor and drag them off in their net. They stoop, they crouch, and the helpless fall by their might. 
They think in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, You will not call us to account? But you do see. Indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed, so that those from earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the gift of your psalms. I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we can hear these psalms, as I said, as a kind of courtroom drama. And as we reflect on it, I want to consider each of the characters that appear in that drama. I want to consider how they're depicted and how they relate to each other, especially. Now, just like any typical courtroom scene that you would imagine, there are three main characters in this psalm. There's the judge, uh, and then there are the two parties that are being judged. And in the psalm, they appear as the Lord, the nations, and the oppressed. The Lord, the nations, and the oppressed. So let's talk about each one of these. First, the Lord. We're introduced to him in the very first verse of Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. So from the very start, we see that God is one who works wonderful things in the world. We see that he is worth praising. And then down in verses 7 and 8, God is described as the judge in this courtroom scene. It says, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with equity. So among his wonderful deeds that we read about in the first verse, here we see the psalmist talking about righteous judgments. These are some of his wondrous deeds. Now, I want you to consider the phrase that we find in verse 7. It says, he has established his throne for judgment. He has established his throne for judgment. The image of a throne and the action of judgment communicates two things to us. The image of a throne tells us that God is the one with power to make things right. And that action of judgment tells us that God is the one with the wisdom to make things right. So God is the one with the power and the wisdom to make things right. 
He is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who makes righteous judgments. But not everyone believes this. And so let's cue the next character to enter the courtroom, the nations, the nations. Now we're introduced to the nations in chapter nine, verse five. And again, down in verse 15, but we get a long description of them in chapter 10, verses three to 11. And we've already seen God seated on the throne, establishing his righteous judgments, but the nations are not so sure about that. Chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 say, The wicked boast of the desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. And the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. The nations are those who think only of themselves. They are consumed with the desires of their heart. They're greedy for gain, and they are filled with pride. They do whatever they want because they don't believe that God will find them out. They are those who live as if there is no God. Now, this description actually really is not all that strange. It reminds me a good bit of the culture that we live in. Right? The main thing is to get ahead, to make an extra buck however you can, even if you have to cut corners or take advantage of others. And that's exactly what we see here in these Psalms. In chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, it says that their lives are marked by deceit and oppression. They murder the innocent. They seize the poor. They push down the helpless. And with every single moral compromise that they make, every single evil action, they become a little bit more comfortable with it. And in verse 11, they say to themselves, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see the things that we have done. You see, they do whatever they want because they believe that they are in charge of the world. And so they can do whatever they want. They say, God has forgotten. But really it is they that have forgotten. That God is the one sitting on the throne, not them. And again, this is not far off from the world that we live in where we constantly see political parties grasping at thrones of power. We often see those who have power taking advantage of the ones who don't. And if we're honest, we often start playing along with that power game. Whether it's pushing people down on social media or harboring hatred toward those with whom we disagree. It is all too easy to begin living as if there is no God, or arrogantly living as if we are God. And this is what we see the nations doing in these Psalms as they trample the helpless and seize the poor. And that leads us to the third character in the courtroom, the oppressed the oppressed, they are the ones who bring their case before God, the righteous judge. 
And unlike the nations who say that there is no God, in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. While the wicked run farther and farther away from God, trampling the oppressed on their way, the oppressed move closer and closer to God, taking refuge in him. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. But I have to ask, how do the oppressed keep holding on to faith even when they continue to be oppressed? How do they hold on to God when the innocent are being murdered and the poor are being seized and the helpless are being trampled? How do the oppressed keep holding on to God when, like it says in 10 verse 5, the ways of the wicked prosper? How do they hold on to God in the midst of that? And, and this is what I love about the Psalms. They are so honest and they, they don't give easy answers to these kinds of difficult questions. And so, so let's look at it. Look, in the midst of times of trouble, sometimes you do what it says in 9 verse 1. Sometimes you give thanks to the Lord and tell of his wonderful deeds. Sometimes you look back and you remember the good things that God is, has done. Or to put it another way, sometimes when you're in Babylon, you look back and remember the time that he delivered you from Egypt. Sometimes when you feel like you're drowning, you remember the time that he parted the Red Sea. Sometimes when you're poor and hungry, you remember the time that he provided manna in the wilderness. And you give thanks for all of his wondrous deeds. Sometimes you look back and you remember the good things that God has done and sing praises to him. And this is a good thing to do in the midst of times of trouble, to remember the goodness of God and cling to it. But other times in the midst of trouble, you do what it says in chapter 10, verse 1. You call out and ask, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in these times of trouble? Sometimes you can't muster enough faith to remember the things that God has done in the past because all you can think of is why it seems like God isn't really doing anything right now. But rather than giving up hope and joining up with the nations with the conclusion that there must be no God, the psalmist still seeks refuge in God by crying out to him. Sometimes, instead of seeking God through praise, all we can muster is to seek God through lament. Instead of giving up, the psalmist holds on and says to God, hey, you're supposed to be reigning on your throne. You're supposed to be establishing righteous judgments in the earth. Why aren't you doing that right now? Where are you? And I want you to hear this. This question 
that the psalmist asks is not doubt. It is actually a bold statement of faith because rather than abandoning God because of challenging circumstances, this question of lament actually holds tightly to God despite the circumstances. It is a bold proclamation of faith. I love this honesty that we see in the Psalms. Sometimes you give thanks and praise because of what God has done in the past. But sometimes you ask questions and you lament because of what God isn't doing right now. And both of these are faithful ways of facing trouble and oppression with God. And what happens when these two responses of praise and lament are joined together? What happens when you join the confidence that God works wonders with the experience of ongoing oppression? Well, when these two things meet, a call comes forth that we see in 9 verse 19, rise up, O Lord, do not let mortals prevail. And we hear that call rise up again in chapter 10 verse 12, rise up, O Lord, do not forget the oppressed. When faithful confidence meets trying circumstance, the oppressed cry out, rise up, O Lord. So how does God respond? How does God respond to that cry? Maybe another way of asking as we consider all the characters in this courtroom, who is right about God? Is it the nations who say that God is forgotten and does not see the oppressed? Or is it the oppressed who cling to him as their stronghold? Well, the psalm makes this clear. In 9 verse 12, it says that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And again, in 9 verse 18, it says the needy shall not be forgotten. In 10, 14, the psalmist declares, you do see, indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. And then in verse 17 and 18, O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed. God is a righteous judge who sits on his throne. Now, as we hear these things, there might just be some other words that begin to echo in our ears. When the psalm says, the needy shall not be forgotten, we might hear, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The psalm says, you note trouble and grief. And we might hear, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The psalm says, you hear the desire of the meek. And we might hear, 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The psalm says you will do justice for the orphan and the oppressed, and we might hear, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. The oppressed of the psalm cried out, rise up, O Lord, and he did. God did rise up. He rose up by descending to be with them amidst their pain, amidst their oppression. When Jesus came, he dwelt not with the rich, but with the poor, not with the powerful, but with the weak, not with the proud, but with the humble. God rose up by descending to be with the oppressed and not only to be with them, but also to become oppressed himself as he lowered himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what comes of the nations in this psalm? What, what judgment is made of them? Well, in 9 verse 5, God rebukes the nations and destroys the wicked. In verse 15, he lets the nations sink into their own pits and get caught in their own nets. In verse 20, the ones who had made themselves to be God come to know that they are only human. So God, the righteous judge, puts the nations in their place. But I want you to hear something. There is more than one way to destroy enemies. There is more than one way to destroy enemies. One of them is to overpower them and, and kill them, right? To turn them into the oppressed. But there is another way to destroy enemies. And that is to make them into your friends. And this is precisely what God does to the nations. Throughout the psalm, we read about the nations. But in the New Testament, the Greek word for nations gets translated differently. In the New Testament, instead of nations, this word is translated Gentiles. So listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul writes, the Gentiles, the nations, have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the good news. God destroys his enemies by making them into his friends. More than that, by making them into his family, his very heirs. The Gentiles have become fellow heirs. God makes, destroys his enemies by making them into heirs. And this is exactly what we see at the foot of the cross. After Jesus breathes his last, the Roman centurion looks up and says, Surely this man was the Son of God. And in that moment, one of the nations, one of the members of the nations came to faith in Christ. 
This is what we saw as we opened this morning reading Revelation. We saw that picture of every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping at the foot of God's throne. This is the way that God brings restoration and justice. In the psalm, verses 10, 15, the psalmist prays for God to seek out their wickedness until he finds none. This is exactly what God does in the Holy Spirit who makes us into new creations, cleanses us from evil, and sanctifies us from one degree of glory to the next. He seeks out our wickedness until he finds none, and we become transformed. So as we reflect on all of this, I want to ask the question, where are we in the courtroom? Where are we in the midst of all of this? Technically, we're the nations, right? We're not Jews. We are Gentiles. But even beyond that technical thing, we, uh, many of us have in fact lived like the nations, as if there is no God. Many of us have oppressed others in various ways, perhaps even unknowingly or unintentionally. And others of us have experienced oppression have been disadvantaged and wronged, have wrestled through trying circumstances and tried to remember the good things that God has done, but perhaps also called out to God in lament. No matter where you fit in this courtroom scene, there is hope. There is hope because Jesus came to sit with the oppressed, and to save the nations. God has the power to make things right, and he has the wisdom to make things right for all people. And we see this in Jesus' death and resurrection, and by the Holy Spirit, God does make things right for all people, the oppressed and even the nations that had oppressed them. And so the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with equity. May it be so. Thanks be to God.